what I thought I would do today is talk about something that I'm really passionate about. And there's a couple things that happened this week that that kind of reminded me of this. And so what we're going to do today is give, I I would like to give us a quick snapshot of um, what it is we're doing here, if that makes sense. Um, We're going to talk about what, like, why is, what's with the church? Like, what's this whole thing about? Um, And so we talk a lot about, there's certain things that we talk a lot about in, like, certain words that we don't normally use in everyday life. And so we're going to talk about the idea of covenant today and what that means for us. Um, we, we talk a lot in our culture as Christians about um, where our society is headed in a handbasket, right? I mean, that's, that's a somewhat normal conversation for us as Christians is the direction our culture is headed in. And a common refrain around that is the erosion of the family. And you see this in um, lots of conversations outside, outside of the church as well. Uh, but the erosion of the family is something that is commonly seen in the erosion of society. And if you look back through history, again, this is common. This is something you see. The erosion of society and the erosion of family tend to go hand in hand. Um, so w- one of the things that we see in Scripture is the importance of family, and as we uh, look around our society, it's very easy to see the importance of family. You can look at statistics. Uh, somebody, Luke, uh, posted some stuff this week on um, the relationship between uh, broken homes and suicides, and how closely those things are tied together. And you can go on down the line, statistically speaking, and see very closely related a lot of the erosion of our society tied with the erosion of the family in our culture, in our country. So we see, like, we know that these things are important. We know that the commitment of the family between a husband and a wife and the children and how that nucleus operates is important and how it fits into our, uh, our communities as a whole is incredibly important. We have a lot of people in our church that are involved in the public school system. The family is incredibly important. Like it's not even it's a, it's not an, even an open secret anymore. This is just plain fact, black and white fact that as the family goes, so goes the society. So, what I what we need to see in all of this, and as we look at Scripture and as we look at ourselves as the church, we have to see it differently than we typically look at the church. So. Let's gonna, we're going to look at the biblical term of covenant, and then we're going to kind of go forward from there into, practically speaking, how we operate. So if you were to look at an encyclopedia or dictionary, a covenant would be defined in this way, an agreement or mutual obligation contracted deliberately and with solemnity. So it's an agreement or mutual obligation that is contracted deliberately, right? So we are mutually and exclusively going into this contract, agreeing to this thing. Now, the problem with that, in terms of a biblical definition, is the fact that God's covenant, when we look at the idea of covenant in Scripture, it's God's covenant with man, that um, it, the terms of that contract or the terms of that covenant are not mutually agreed upon. 
There wasn't, nowhere in Scripture do you see any of the covenants that God makes with men where God sits down with Noah and says, hey, what do you think? Like, there's no negotiations. He didn't sit down with Abraham over dinner and hash this thing out. God comes to man and says, here's the covenant, take it or leave it. Right? So the covenant between God and man is not mutually decided upon. God decides the terms of the covenant always. Now, we, again, we can take this back to the idea of a family and say, um, would I ever go to my two-year-old and go, so what do you think about um, college? Like how we, you just wouldn't do that. Now, again, that's an imperfect example, but uh, when it comes to covenants that made between man and God, God decides the terms of the covenant always. There's never a deviation from that. Now, God doesn't negotiate with anyone, but he is constantly, we see in Scripture, the idea of covenant between him and his people is everywhere. Psalm 119, or 111 verse 9 says, He has commanded his covenant forever. He's his covenant. Holy and terrible is his name. Judges 2.20 says, This nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers. So the terms of the covenant belong to who? God. Because He's the one that brought them to the table. They are his terms. We don't have any input into what those terms are. We are created beings joining into a covenant with the creator who decides the terms of the covenant. Now, um, there is no mutual determination of these things. God sets the obligations. God sets the terms. So the, the idea of holiness, that's... That idea and what that idea means is put in place by who? God. Because it's who he is. And we don't get to define what holy is. And you, by the way, we talked about the um, truth becoming relative a lot last week. This, these terms that we it scripturally would define, that we would find our definition from God, our culture is now trying to redefine. So when someone in our culture says that uh, same-sex marriage is holy, they are redefining the idea of holiness. And I would say in stark contrast to how God would define it. Now that's just one example, and that's a direct quote that I heard from someone. But we are attempting to redefine things that we have given, been given no authority to redefine. We, have, we are attempting to reshape terms uh, and uh, things that God has set in place from the beginning of time, we are now, as man, trying to reshape and reform. And we are in no shape to do such a thing. So uh, we see this in, in the idea of family, right? So no longer is the idea of family as set forth by Scripture, as set forth by God, seen as ultimate truth. So this idea that, that we are married and we stay married and we are committed to said person because we said, till death do us part, no longer do those things hold sway. No longer are those things the terms by which we live our lives. And so now we can go, okay, yeah, it's, the, it's all centered on the family. Well, ultimately, if we were going to come to this from a biblical standpoint, this is centered on God because God sets forth the terms of the covenant 
that he has with us. And so marriage is a picture of that covenant. So as this starts to erode, so will this. Does that make sense? So now, as this has just been completely eroded, now people are starting to go, whoa, you know, this whole thing, this whole relationship with God, and now we're starting to reshape this. It's insanity. To think that we can somehow redefine the terms of an agreement that God set in place without no input, with no input from us, ever. So God... is not obligated in any way to us. And yet he is constantly putting himself under obligation. He does it to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. I established my covenant with you, and never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Why did God say that? Did he have to say that? Of course he didn't. God put himself under an obligation through a promise to Noah. He does it to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. I shall be the, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God has a purpose behind these promises that he's making. He is under no obligation whatsoever. And yet he is constantly putting himself under obligation through promises. He says to Moses, I will make, behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not have been wrought in all the earth. Exodus 34. And to David I have made my covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your descendants forever. I will build your throne for all generations, Psalm 89. So God obligates himself with promises. God places himself in a covenant relationship with man whom he has no obligation to. And we spend far too much time, I think, um, wondering why God did it the way he did it and far too little time, I think, marveling over the fact that he did. God makes these promises to us, establishes these covenants with us of his own accord and of his own choosing because he loves us. And I think the book of Hosea is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful example of this. You have a picture of a man who God says, take this woman who is a prostitute for your wife. This man goes and takes this woman for his wife. They have children, and she leaves him again and again and again to go back to the gutter. This man was under no obligation whatsoever. And this was a picture God tells him of his relationship with us as humans. One of constant grace, constant love, constant choosing to enter into covenant with someone who is repeatedly running the opposite direction. So Hebrews 8 um, is a great passage. As we're talking about covenants between man and God. So I'm just going to read it and then we'll go from there. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who was seated at the right hand at the throne, of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That is Jesus, a minister of the holy places in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. So who set up this thing? God, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So in the Old Testament covenant system, they had this uh, sacrificial system and they had priests. And if you wanted to come into the temple, you had a priest that would mediate and they would help you offer the sacrifices. And they had this whole system. 
right? For every high priest is appointed to offer the gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Why? Because they're human too, and they are imperfect and sinful as well. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a high priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. So the role of the priests in the temple, the writer of Hebrews is saying, were serving a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. They were doing something that was designed to point to something else. Right? For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So what's the, what were these things pointing to? Jesus. They were pointing to Jesus. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. So not like the Old Testament covenant system. A new covenant. On the day that I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So the, the, the nation of Israel was continually and repeatedly rejecting God's Uh, terms of the covenant, the terms that God had set through Moses in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was completely completely and constantly rejecting and running away from. He says, they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach, and they shall, they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and say to one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So this passage takes the old covenant and this idea of a new covenant and contrasts them, right? So he's saying, here's the old, and it was actually pointing to this, which is the new, which does away with the old, because the old was imperfect, whereas the new one is perfect. The first covenant created the nation of Israel, right? And so here's where it starts to become a little bit applicable. The second covenant creates the church. So the covenant that was enacted through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just, and hear me out here, not just so that you can go to heaven. It's so much more than that. God is actually completing the work that he began far, 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 far before in creating for himself a covenant people, creating for himself a bride, as it were. Which you and I, as individuals, take part in. But this is so much bigger, you guys, than just me going to heaven. This is what the church is about. 
This is why we come here on Sunday morning and eat donuts and do all this stuff that seems so monotonous at times. We are members of a covenant that God has made with man. So, the main differences between the two covenants. Hebrews 8 says, uh, in chapter 6, he said, Christ is the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Well, what are those better promises? In verses 8 and 9, he says, In finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. I mean, read through the book of Exodus. It's astonishing how quickly they go from all that the Lord has commanded we will do to exactly the opposite. Sometimes it's, it seems like it's ours. Right? It reminds me of me. They did not continue in my covenant. But, verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And then in verse 12, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So, The difference, the main difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is that not only are the terms uh, completely set forth by God in both covenants, but in the New Covenant, who completes the terms of the covenant? He does. Right? And so, again, we saw a a little bit of a foreshadowing uh, way back in the book of Genesis. We've talked about this over the last couple weeks. Um, When God made the covenant, the, the initial covenant with Abraham, and we talked about this, this, this way, this ceremony that they would go through during that time in um, ratifying these covenants. They would take all these different kinds of animals and they'd cut them in half and they'd pour the blood in these ditches and, and then they would prop them up on either sides and then they would, kind of, they would walk through all the blood together as a way of saying, if I break the covenant, may I end up like these? And so uh, you see in this passage that... that they set this whole thing up and then God causes Abraham to fall asleep and God passes through and ratifies the covenant alone. A foreshadowing of what he was going to do through the blood of Jesus. So God sets the terms of the covenant with his people and he carries out the terms of the covenant for his people. Again, we spend far too much time worrying about what we can and can't do and why, God, why, and far too little time completely in awe of the fact that he would do this for us. Bringing us into covenant relationship with him. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them upon their hearts. I will not leave this up to human initiative. I will do it Myself. I will do it for them. This is unbelievable for us. At the Last Supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now here's the question who are the many? The church. 
And as we grow in our faith, it's incredibly important that we see this as not just me. Right? This is very true. Jesus died for you. But not just you. So here's um, one of the most important things about this idea of covenant relationship. We are now, as the church, as the body of Christ, a part of this covenant with him. Which also means that we are necessarily a part of this covenant with each other. If you look at this again, is the, 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 the idea of a body, right? Christ being the head. The hand doesn't say, yeah, 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 I'm connected to the head, but I'm not connected to that other hand. Are you kidding me? Left hand? Gross. Or other, any other body, part of the body. We are not only connected through this covenant relationship with Christ, we are also connected inseparably to each other. So when we talk about this idea of community, when we talk about this idea of of, uh, committing to a body of believers, this is so much more than just making sure that you're spending a lot of time together. Now, we as a church have not, as of yet, come up with covenant membership. That's something that is on the horizon that I'm constantly thinking about, constantly praying about how to make that happen. That is on the horizon. We do want to do that. But we don't have that yet. Where where people in our church would um, read a set of commitments that they are making to each other, not to an organization, and publicly making those declarations. That's that's coming. I, I really want to do that. But sometimes I don't necessarily think that doing that on paper is necessary. I remember um, before my wife and I got these tattoos on our ring fingers, I hadn't worn my my wedding ring in years. And uh, she didn't mind. I I worked in construction off and on, and wedding rings can be dangerous um, when you're working with power tools. And... uh, so I just, I, I, you know, I'd get off work and I wouldn't remember to put it back on and so I just hardly ever wore it. And here's the statement that I would make to people. If I need a piece of metal on my finger for people to know that I'm married to her, then something's wrong. So a, the same could be applied uh, in this room. If we need a piece of paper with a signature on it in order to really believe that we're in covenant community with one another, then maybe we need to reestablish like, what that means and what it looks like. Now, I understand the very real importance for ceremony and public declarations, and so, again, we're working towards that, but here's what I want us to, to look at here. If we are, according to the terms of the covenant that God set forth and that God enacted to bring us together with him and with each other, what does that look like? Hopefully, it takes away fear of rejection. Now, I don't want you to hear me say that you can never, ever switch churches This is life, man. 
but I think that we should push towards that. There are good reasons and bad reasons to leave churches and to switch churches. But do we view, and here's the point I'm I'm trying to make here, is do we view our relationship with the body of Christ in this way? Or is it just a place we go on Sundays? I remember having a conversation once with someone and they were having a really hard time with the fact that um, that someone would put the church, their church, their, their, their body that they were a part of over their relationship with their extended family that lived in another state. And they kept saying, you know, blood is thicker than water. Blood is thicker than water. I don't, anybody know where that term came from? Luke does. I'll ask him later. I just always thought that was interesting. And so my response to them was, okay, great. Yeah, I I understand the idea that family is important. Completely understand that. I have one. But do we view the covenant that we are a part of through the blood of Christ as possibly even stronger than the physical bond that we could possibly have with family? Because you read through the book of Luke and Jesus says some pretty strong things about whether or not you're worthy to follow him. Things like, well, if you don't reject your father and mother, you're not worthy of me. Now, is, is, was Jesus saying in that moment, like, hey, go tell your dad and mom that you don't love them anymore? Of course not. Is he saying you never talk to them again? Of course not. He's making a point about the fact that in order to follow him, in order to be a part of this new covenant, we have to understand that this covenant is binding and it is heavy. And it is, by the way, eternal. It will last forever. We have to understand that I'm not going to be married. I, I'm not going to be married to Shannon forever. I'll be married to her until I die. I will be a part of the covenant body of Jesus for eternity. My marriage to Shannon is a picture that is intended to point all the people around us back to the promise that Christ made to us. This is an eternal promise, an eternal binding covenant that he, the creator God, has made with his people. And so my question to us today, again, is do we view the church that way? Do we view the church as a whole, worldwide, that way? Right? So here's, like, as I'm looking at this, I go, man, do I view other churches in Staten as brothers and sisters? And the answer is yes. That required some work on their part and on my part. And so now most of the pastors in this town actually get together once a month and we pray for each other and we share things. We talk about people that, you know, used to be in your church and now my church. I'm just kidding. We don't do that. But I can honestly say, yes, those guys are on my team and I'm on their team and we are all in this together. Absolutely. And there have been times when one of them said, hey, so-and-so, 
there's a family that's um, that's not really fitting in or whatever, you know, for whatever reason they're going to start coming. And so we celebrate those things together. There's no competition here. We're not trying to build an earthly empire. But we have to constantly ask ourselves those questions as we look around the, this room, as we look around our communities. Do we view the covenant body of believers in the way that God would have us view it? Do we think about church the way God would have us think about church? Or again, is it just something we go to? Is it an organization that we give a little money to every now and then and that we're committed to attending once a week? Or is it something deeper? Is there something that binds us to each other? Something like the blood of Jesus. We have to change the way we think about the church. When we change the way we think about the church, the way the church operates changes. The the world does not need a 501c3 that does good stuff and that tells people that they need Jesus to go to hell. It needs more than that. We need to tell people that they need Jesus. And we need to do good things. But the covenant body of believers was intended to be so much more than that. So much more than that. We were intended as a group of people to show the world what it looks like to operate underneath the rule of King Jesus. And what that means for our relationships towards each other. And to transform communities and to transform towns and to transform cities and to transform countries through that covenant relationship with our Creator. That's what the church is supposed to do. That's what the church is supposed to be. But it will not happen as God intends it to happen until we see it for what it really is. And, and part of the reason I think that we don't is, is the culture that we live in, right? The customer's always right. And for some reason, that has infiltrated the church to now, you like, I mean, I'm the church and you guys are all customers. Like, that, that's how most of the people outside of this room and some people in this room view this. And the customer is always right, so we're going to write on our comment cards that we didn't like that song. Or would Sam, you know, preach about something that I'm interested in. Or we were joking this morning about like, hey, you're not entertaining us enough. I could care less if you're entertained. That's not why I'm here. The customer's not always right. Right? Some of you have worked in retail. Some of you have served coffee. The customer's not always right. In fact, most of the time the customer's a jerk. Right? Can we just be really honest? Sorry, I, the kids are in here. My bad. But I think, I think you guys understand where I'm coming from. This thing is not what we think it is. The covenant body of believers is tied to Jesus and controlled by Jesus. He's in charge here. Not me. Not a group of elders. Not the, the kids' church leaders. Not the setup crew. Jesus. 
And we look to him through the scriptures for everything. And increasingly, it shapes how we live and it shapes our lives as they intermingle with one another. Amen? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the work that you're doing in each one of us. But more importantly, the work that you're doing in us as a whole. God, we ask that you would continue that work today, tomorrow, next week, next month. God, that your glory would be seen in the world around us through the way that we interact with each other and with them. We pray these things in your name, amen.